Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. I'm going to tell you guys two words that sort of blew my mind when I was studying for step one. Are you ready? Pattern recognition. I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with this technique, and it's not really blowing your minds, but to me, you don't understand. When I realized how much the step one is about pattern recognition, it was completely revolutionary. Take pneumonia, for instance. I thought pneumonia was so intimidating to study at first, just because there are so many pathogens you have to know, you have to know every little detail about them. Well, once I realized that little secret about pattern recognition, I realized that I don't have to know every single little detail about every single pathogen. What you mainly do have to know is recognize that each microorganism presents with certain risk factors, certain presentation, and that's really what the examiners are going to go after. And so today, I'd like to help you guys understand some of those patterns, and we're going to focus on simplifying pneumonia and ingraining some of those common vignettes that examiners will ask. We'll talk about the different types of pneumonia, get into some of those classic vignettes, and then we'll also get into a little bit of treatment and talk about some complications of pneumonia as well. There's no way to sugarcoat the amount of material you have to know. It's definitely a lot, but hopefully as you get some repetition, go through the material again and again, it'll get easier with each pass. So now, knowing that we don't necessarily have to know every answer in this review, um, let's get into it. Let's just start with some definitions. Most basic, what is pneumonia? It's an infection of the parenchyma of the lung, right? Um, People often get upper respiratory tract infections. Pneumonia is definitely a lower respiratory tract infection because it's all the way inside the lungs. And what types of pathogens cause pneumonia? Well, kind of anything, right? Bacteria, viruses, fungi. And all of these have certain traits that we have to be familiar with. So that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the pattern recognition. Now, what's the most common bacterial cause of pneumonia? It's in the name, streptococcus pneumonia. Okay, so that's not a hard one to remember. And how do you describe streptococcus pneumonia um, if you looked at it on a plate? So it's a gram-positive alpha-hemolytic diplococcus, right? And it's kind of classically described as being in lancet-shaped pairs. Um, that's kind of important to know about strep pneumo. So now, usually when we think of pneumonia, we think of a lobar pneumonia, right? Um, a consolidation within one particular lobe. Of course, it could definitely stretch to the entire lung, um, but you kind of get an exudate within the alveoli, and it usually consolidates to one lobe. So an important thing to know is kind of the pathologic progression of lobar pneumonia, like what happens within the time course of the infection, okay? So on pathology, what would you see kind of in days one to two of a pneumonia? So it's described as congested, okay? You see a lot of congestion. So there's kind of partial consolidation of the parenchyma. It's like this reddish purple exudate, and it's just full of bacteria, right? Because the infection has just started. Around days three to four, what do you see? There's a specific name 
It's kind of random. Days three to four, you see something called red hepatization. They say hepatization because it looks like the liver. So now you get this kind of red-brown mass, and the pneumonia is fully consolidated, and the exudate is full of bacteria, but it also has fibrin, white blood cells, red blood cells, because now your body's trying to fight the infection. Days five to seven, what do you see? I'll give you a hint. It's not red hepatization. It's gray hepatization, okay? And it's, it's considered gray now because the red blood cells are lysed, and so mainly what you see in the exudate is white blood cells and fibrin. They're trying to resolve the infection. And then after day eight or so, what do you see? Resolution, okay? Um, there's enzymes in your lungs that are, digest all of the um, residual material. They digest the exudate, and after day eight or so, it resolves. So typically, a pneumonia takes about a week to go away. And you can remember, um, there's kind of four steps, and it's usually resolved after day eight. Now, lobar pneumonia is what is generally associated with the typical presentation of pneumonia, right? People are sick, they have fever, they're coughing, they're coughing up sputum. It's usually yellow or green in color. They might have some pleuritic chest pain because the wherever the pneumonia is, it's kind of pressing on their pleura and that inflammation is causing pain. Um, and so kind of start to associate lobar pneumonia with a more typical presentation of pneumonia. Another pattern of infiltration that leads to that same usually typical presentation of pneumonia um, involves not just the alveoli, but also the bronchioles. You guys know what that's called? It's pretty easy to remember, bronchopneumonia, okay? And the same types of organisms that cause lobar pneumonia can cause bronchopneumonia, okay? Think of it kind of as a consolidated infection, and it may or may not involve the bronchioles. So what types of pathogens typically cause typical pneumonia? Sorry to say that word so many times. So yeah, streptococcus pneumonia is definitely something you should think about. Um, and then other things like Legionella, Klebsiella, Haemophilus influenza. Some of the big, some of these names are names that you should associate with typical presentation of pneumonia. Okay. Now, what about a type of pneumonia that has diffuse patchy inflammation throughout the interstitium? The key word here is kind of that it's diffuse and the inflammation is probably bilateral. So this is interstitial pneumonia, okay? Diffuse throughout the interstitium, bilateral. Think of that with, as being with interstitial pneumonia. And generally, interstitial pneumonia is associated more with atypical presentation, okay? So these patients aren't necessarily coughing up purulent sputum. They might have a dry cough. They don't have raging fevers. It's probably just a low-grade fever, if anything. So Essentially, they look a lot better than their chest x-ray looks, okay? What types of pathogens are associated with interstitial pneumonia or atypical pneumonia? Mycoplasma pneumonia is a big one, right? That typically causes atypical pneumonia in um, adolescents. Wow, I really need to stop saying typically. <laughs> um, Chlamydophila species as well, so chlamydophilia pneumonia, chlamydophila sataki. Uh, remember, that's the one that's associated with birds. Legionella can also sometimes cause interstitial pneumonia and then oftentimes viruses. 
um, RSV, CMV, influenza, adenovirus. A lot of viruses can also cause this atypical pneumonia. And it's called atypical because it usually has a milder presentation. And then finally, to kind of wrap up our talk on different patterns of pneumonia, there is one type of pneumonia that's not associated with any infectious causes, okay? So in a question stem, they might say that a patient was given antibiotics and they didn't have any response to it because the, this pneumonia isn't infectious. It's usually characterized by inflammation and fibrosis of the bronchioles, and it's kind of idiopathic. We don't know why it happens, but it's associated frequently with chronic lung transplant rejection. It can be seen from adverse effects of drugs such as amiodarone. Remember that causes pulmonary fibrosis. And it can also be associated with autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. Key is that it's not infectious. What's this called? I'm going for cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, okay? And it used to have a more fun name, I think. Boop, remember bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia? Now we call it cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. Um, if you kind of dissect both of those long names, um, cryptogenic, we, we really don't know what causes it. But just remember that that is not infectious, okay? Generally, though, when you see pneumonia um, in the hospital or in the clinic as you um, move forward to, your, to the wards next year, um, pneumonia is going to be classified based on etiology, okay? So community-acquired versus hospital-acquired versus ventilator-acquired, okay? And let's talk briefly about what each of those mean. Community-acquired, it's kind of self-explanatory, right? You acquire it out in the community, just out and about. Or the caveat is within 48 hours of hospitalization, okay? If you've only been in the hospital for less than two days, then you probably haven't been there long enough to get something from the hospital. So you probably still acquired it in the community. Um, Hospital-acquired pneumonia, then, is acquired 48 hours after hospitalization, and then the last one, ventilator acquired, it's within 48 hours of intubation, okay? So just to review what I was talking about earlier, let's review the presentation of pneumonia, okay? Because whenever a patient presents with pneumonia, it's important um, to understand their symptoms and that clues us into what pathogen is causing their disease. So what were the symptoms of typical pneumonia again? Right more sick, okay? Think more sick equals typical. So these appear suddenly. They're associated with fevers, chills, night sweats. Again, their cough is productive of purulent sputum, so it can be yellow or green. They're short of breath. They have that pleuritic chest pain from inflammation of the pleura. And the organisms that cause it? Yeah, typical organisms that you'd think of. So like strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, Klebsiella, these are the sorts of organisms that cause typical pneumonia. And then what was the atypical presentation of pneumonia again? If it helps to remember the symptoms, atypical pneumonia is also sometimes called walking pneumonia, okay? Because the patients that have it really don't look that sick. So this has a more indolent course. The symptoms are almost viral, right? Like a viral prodrome. They have myalgia, headache, sore throat. They have a dry cough, and usually the chest x-ray looks a lot worse than the patient. They may even have GI symptoms sometimes. And what were the organisms that we see in atypical pneumonia again? Yeah, so viruses, uh, mycoplasma, again, um, chlamydophilus species as well. 
When you're working through practice questions on pneumonia, it's very important to recognize the presentation, so definitely acknowledge if it's typical or atypical, and it's also important to acknowledge um, the risk factors, okay? And there's always certain buzzwords, um, certain catchphrases associated with specific pathogens. And so now I'm going to talk through some very quick vignettes and see if we can make some of those associations, okay? So our first case. Let's say a homeless person comes in, he, his breath smells of alcohol, he's been sick for the last two days, and he's found to have a consolidation in his right upper lobe. He's also coughing up a lot of very foul-smelling sputum. What might he have? So I'm going for aspiration pneumonia, okay? And what, causes a- what types of pathogens cause aspiration pneumonia? Anaerobes, okay? And anyone who's at risk for... Um, aspiration can get this. So alcoholics classically, but also people who have seizures, people who are intubated, um, anyone who's bedridden and sort of not able to swallow well on their own, okay? Now, another case about a homeless person, okay? But this person's presenting with three-week history of fever, cough. He also has weight loss, night sweats, and he's coughing up blood. And his exam shows a right upper lobe infiltrate again. What do you want to suspect in this patient? So this patient, um, with that three-week history, hemoptysis, as well as weight loss, you really want to consider TB, okay? So make sure you rule out tuberculosis before anything else. Next case, uh, how about an adolescent boy who has a dry cough and headache and he has myalgias? He also has cyanosis of his fingers and toes and chest x-ray shows bilateral diffuse interstitial infiltrates. What does he have? So this is classic presentation for mycoplasma pneumonia, okay? This is an atypical pneumonia because his presentation really isn't that bad. He has a dry cough, headache, uh, could be anything. But then his chest x-ray looks really bad with the bilateral diffuse interstitial infiltrates. And why is he cyanotic in his fingers and toes? So remember, mycoplasma pneumonia is one of the infections that can activate cold agglutinins, okay? So these are IgM antibodies that can, ca- that can start to agglutinate um, in, in cold temperatures. So that's why extremities are usually affected, uh, just because they run at colder temperatures. And so they can actually lead to hemolytic anemia, and that causes poor blood circulation in the extremities. So that's why his fingers and toes are cyanotic, Okay. Next case, what about a patient who has diabetes and he has community-acquired pneumonia um, and he's coughing up currant jelly sputum? Klebsiella, that currant jelly sputum is kind of a keyword for Klebsiella, okay? Kind of a thick, mucoid, bloody sputum, all right? What about an elderly person who was treated for the flu one week ago? And now he's presenting with fever, cough, shortness of breath. So this should make you think about some kind of post-viral bacterial super infection, okay? A lot of times in the elderly, after they get the flu, they're more susceptible to super infection with bacteria. And what's the most common organism to cause super infection? It's Staph aureus, okay? So think about that, an elderly person who might have had the flu. All right, what about a person who's intubated and they get pneumonia? What 
this isn't very specific, I'm sorry, but what pathogen should you be more worried about in a patient who's intubated versus someone who's not? So I'm going for Pseudomonas, okay, because Pseudomonas very classically likes moist environments, and so a ventilator kind of makes a perfect growth plate for uh, Pseudomonas. So you definitely want to cover Pseudomonas in a person who's on a ventilator. Now, what about an HIV patient? Or or we can say a patient who's chronically on steroids as well, um, but usually they'll ask about an HIV patient. Um, comes in with two-week history of fatigue, dry cough, low-grade fevers. On exam, they have diffuse crackles on the lung, and the chest x-ray shows diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities. So this should make you think of PCP pneumonia, okay, pneumocystis pneumonia. Um, this causes those, it causes a diffuse bilateral ground glass infiltrate, and it classif- classically affects HIV patients who have a CD4 count less than 200, but it can also happen in patients who are chronically treated on steroids. So actually, we should prophylax these patients. And what should we use to prophylax them? TMPSMX, okay, or Bactrim. Uh, We want to prophylax them, HIV patients with low CD4 counts for PCP pneumonia. And then this is sort of my last case here for classic vignettes. Um, let's say a 58-year-old man just came back from a work trip and he stayed in a hotel and now he's presenting with headache, confusion, cough, and he also has diarrhea. What organism are you worried about? Legionella, okay? Legionella is associated um, kind of classically with AC systems um, and it presents with a triad of cough, Uh, neurological symptoms, as well as GI symptoms, so diarrhea. And what lab abnormality do we frequently see in patients with Legionella infection? Hyponatremia, if you knew that, very good. Um, The etiology of the hyponatremia is sort of unclear. SIADH has been proposed um, as a potential explanation, you know, syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. Um, But Remember that Legionella is frequently associated with hyponatremia. And I've had questions where they actually give you those lab values and the patient's presenting with that triad of cough, confusion, diarrhea. So good. Hopefully running through some of those vignettes was helpful. Um, I tried to make them as true to the classic, classic presentation that we learn about um, in textbooks. And so um, if that was helpful, I might even recommend listening to that section again Uh, just to really reiterate um, those associations. So getting more into um, diagnosis and management of pneumonia, how do we actually diagnose pneumonia? So first of all, your physical findings are very important, right? Um, What are physical findings associated with pneumonia? So when you listen to their lungs, you might often hear decreased breath sounds. They might even describe bronchial breath sounds. So bronchial breath sounds are usually normal when they're heard over the trachea. Um, They're more high-pitched, but if you hear them over peripheral lung fields, then that's abnormal and it might indicate some sort of infiltration. You might hear rails indicative of fluid. You might hear some wheezing. And then um, other techniques that we use besides listening. So You'll feel dullness to percussion, you know, because there's a mass there. If it's a low bar pneumonia especially, you'll get some tactile fremitus. That indicates that there's something solid in the lungs. 
And then what's the name for that physical finding where you ask the patient to say E and then what you hear them saying is ah through the stethoscope? So egophony, okay? Um, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of a funny physical finding, but egophony is something that you might see because of um, just from the transmission of the sound over that dense tissue. So you ask the patient to say E and then when they say it, it sounds like ah. And another thing they might say is whispered pectriloquy. Do you guys know what whispered pectriloquy is? So this is where you clearly hear sounds through the stethoscope that the patient is whispering. Normally it shouldn't happen, but um, that's what happens when you have pneumonia because the sound travels more through that solid medium. Okay, I just uh, wanted to kind of break down some of these physical findings that we often gloss over um, when we read the vignettes, just so you understand what they are. And then, of course, beyond the physical findings, if you hear something abnormal, you're going to want to get imaging. So we always get a chest x-ray. And um, again, if you see a consolidation versus a diffuse interstitial infiltrate, that should help you decide if it's typical or atypical. Okay. And then beyond that, of course, you can get sputum, gram stain, and culture, blood cultures if you want, and then there are specific antigen tests for organisms. Diagnosis is relatively straightforward though. And so what you're more likely to get asked on the step exam is something about treatment of pneumonia. Okay. And I thought treatment was very overwhelming, but at the step one level, usually what you need to do is identify the most likely organism based on the vignette and then be able to identify an organism that covers it. Okay. So we're not truly going to get into, um, a review of antibiotics right now. We'll save that for another time, but I will try to give you some helpful hints. Okay. So first of all, uh, just generally, and this applies for any disease, uh, there are certain antibiotics that are kind of considered big guns. Okay. And they have very broad spectrum. So you should familiarize yourself with those and know that we only want to use them if they're truly necessary. Okay. Usually we want to use antibiotics with the narrowest spectrum that covers all the organisms that we are considering. And so in the treatment of pneumonia, that's why we uh, sort of divide it into hospital-acquired versus community-acquired, because we start treatment empirically based on what we think the organism might be. And then after we get some of those more specific diagnostic tests like sputum stain and culture, then we can narrow down our treatment, Okay. So in the hospital, we usually treat based on the etiology. So community-acquired pneumonia in an otherwise healthy person, do you guys know what antibiotic you might pick for that? So generally, especially if you're treating as an outpatient, you'd either pick a macrolide or you might pick doxycycline, okay? And macrolide kind of covers, macrolides are like erythromycin, clarithromycin, azithromycin, they cover certain atypical organisms like mycoplasma, um, and then they also cover some of the more typical organisms that you're worried about, like strep pneumo, okay? Now, if someone has community-acquired pneumonia and they recently got antibiotics or they also have comorbidities, any idea? So you'd want to choose fluoroquinolones, okay? Um, just because they're associated with less resistance than macrolides and um, they're a little bit broader spectrum. Now, what about hospital-acquired pneumonia? Think about what you might want to cover. So 
In hospitals, there's a much higher rate of gram-negative bacilli, like E. coli, pseudomonas. And so you want to pick something that can get pseudomonas especially, okay? So you might choose anti-pseudomonal um, cephalosporins, like cefepime, ceftazidime, okay? Those are two anti-pseudomonal cephalosporins. You could choose an anti-pseudomonal penicillin. You know which one that is? Piperacillin tazobactam, yeah. Um, and then we could also choose carbapenems. And there is one carbapenem that doesn't cover pseudomonas. Do you know what that is? Erdapenem, okay? The other ones do, but erdapenem does not cover pseudomonas. And then lastly, if someone has ventilator-associated pneumonia, there's something else that we want to cover. We want to be a lot more aggressive with ventilator-associated pneumonia. So MRSA, okay? And in this case, we add either vancomycin or linezolid, and these are two big gun drugs um, that have broad spectrums, and they cover MRSA. So once we get more specific cultures, we can consider narrowing treatment. But initially, we want to cover everything that it could possibly be, okay? And then this one wasn't really covered in um, the community versus hospital-acquired pneumonias. But a patient with pneumocystis pneumonia, I said it before, but just to reiterate, how do we treat pneumocystis pneumonia? So TMPSMX, okay? And under what HIV count should you be getting TMPSMX prophylaxis for PCP? 200, okay? Patients at CD4 less than 200 with HIV should be getting TMPSMX prophylaxis, all right? Now, since we're on the topic of pneumonia, there's also some complications that you should be familiar with. So let's say a patient with certain risk factors, either alcoholism or seizures or intubated patient, um, they end up remaining sick for several weeks and they are producing large volumes of foul-smelling sputum. They even have some weight loss and their chest x-ray shows a cavity in the right upper lobe with air fluid levels. What's the diagnosis here? So this case you should kind of recognize um, is aspiration pneumonia, but that chest x-ray finding is really key for lung abscess. Seeing a cavity with air fluid levels, um, as well as copious amounts of very foul-smelling sputum, both of those point towards the diagnosis of lung abscess. Okay. Now, what if a patient with pneumonia has a chest x-ray that shows blunting of the costophrenic angles. What is that indicative of? That would be a pleural effusion, okay? And pleural effusions have certain classifications, and if they're really bad, it could even be considered an empyema, okay? So let's talk about that a little more. Um, in general, what are two types of pleural effusions? Generally, we classify them as either transudates and exudates, okay? And how does transudate occur? So for transudates, I generally just think of fluid traveling across a membrane because there's either increased hydrostatic pressure or decreased oncotic pressure, okay? So in this case, it's just going to be fluid. Causes of this, anyone know? So anything that increases hydrostatic pressure or decreases oncotic pressure. So CHF can increase the hydrostatic pressure. Things like cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, 
they deplete proteins and they can decrease oncotic pressure. So they would generally cause a transudate. Now, when do you get an exudate? So for exudates, I think of membranes being damaged by inflammation, okay? And that sort of allows everything through, not just fluid, but also proteins, enzymes, all of that. What are causes of exudate? Pneumonia, very good. Um, also malignancy, you can see it after pancreatitis, for example, if you get acute respiratory distress syndrome. So exudate, think pneumonia, okay? Membranes are getting damaged and proteins, enzymes, everything's getting through. So what do we use to differentiate clinically between transudates and exudates? Do you remember light's criteria? Well, if you don't, we're going to go over it. Um, but think about it. What are light's criteria? So for those, we look at protein and LDH, okay? Um, and we measure the ratio of plural to serum. So ratio of plural protein to serum protein should be more than 0.5. Ratio of plural LDH, lactate dehydrogenase, to serum LDH should be greater than 0.6. Or the plural fluid LDH can just be more than two-thirds upper limit of normal. And I did the math. The upper limit of normal serum LDH is 90. So two-thirds of that is 60. So if plural fluid LDH is more than 60, that meets light's criteria as well. Okay, so one more time. Ratio of plural protein to serum protein is more than 0.5. Ratio of plural LDH to serum LDH is more than 0.6. Or plural fluid LDH is just over 60. Okay, and if you meet any one of these criteria, then that is enough to classify your fluid as an exudate. Okay, it's basically saying that you have enough protein or LDH enzyme to be considered an exudate, okay? And a lot of times in question stems, they'll give you these values from serum analysis and pleural fluid analysis, and you have to calculate the ratios and figure out if it truly is an exudate, all right? I can't tell you how many times I had questions with all these values listed, and I had no idea that I needed to use light's criteria, okay? So if they give you these values, think about doing those calculations. Now, as if differentiating between transudate and exudate isn't enough, when someone has pneumonia, we have to determine if their effusion is complicated or uncomplicated, or if it's an empyema. So, let's talk through that. What is an uncomplicated paranemonic effusion? So this happens in the setting of pneumonia, and it's just due to fluid moving across due to inflammation, Okay. The fluid is generally clear, the pH is high, it's higher than 7.2, and the glucose is high as well, it's over 60, all right? So in uncomplicated paranemonic effusion, you just have fluid crossing over because of the inflammation. What happens in a complicated effusion? So in this case, you actually have bacteria that are invading the pleural space, okay? The fluid is cloudy. The pH is lower, it's less than 7.2 because bacteria make acid, and the glucose is also less than 60 because bacteria use up glucose, right? So when the bacteria start invading the pleural space, it becomes complicated. And then what's an empyema? So anytime you have that PY, PI um, syllable in there, 
that root is indicative of pus, okay? So empyema is bad. It's straight up bacterial colonization, all right? So at this point, the fluid's not cloudy, it's purulent. The pH is still going to be low and the glucose is still going to be high though because you have a lot of bacteria colonizing that space. So why do we differentiate between uncomplicated, complicated, and empyema? What's, why do we even bother with that? So complicated and complicated effusions, as well as empyema, not only need to be treated with antibiotics, they also need chest tube drainage, okay? Because unless we get that bacteria out of there, the infection's not going to resolve. In uncomplicated effusions, it's okay to just give antibiotics, all right? And so kind of on the flip side of treating all these complications, what do we do to prevent pneumonia just in the general population? So we give the influenza vaccine every year, right? If you're over six months of age, you should be getting an influenza vaccine every year. And that's important because remember we talked about those super infections with Staph aureus and the elderly? So that's one thing that we do. And then there's another vaccine that we kind of use to prevent pneumonia. The pneumococcal vaccine, okay? The pneumococcal vaccine is a conjugated vaccine against streptococcus pneumonia. And we give that to everyone who's over 65, okay? And then we also give it to some patients who are under 65 who have diabetes, chronic lung disease, if they're immunocompromised somehow, for example, if they don't have a functional spleen as in sickle cell. So um, it's important to know about these vaccinations because these are things that we can do to prevent pneumonia. And pneumonia in the elderly especially can have very drastic consequences, including death. So um, it's important to try to take some measures to prevent that. And that's kind of all I have in terms of pneumonia. Um, just some take-home points, since I know this was very long and probably mentally taxing. Um, make sure you understand how the presentation for typical versus atypical pneumonia differs, and make sure you can recognize the causative organisms for each. Um, make sure that you learn certain buzzwords that are associated with particular pneumonias, okay? And this is what I was saying earlier, pattern recognition. And it's tough because there's a lot that you have to know. So it's not just about pattern recognition. It's also about repetition and getting those buzzwords kind of ingrained in your mind. And then finally, be able to go through LIGHTS criteria, understand the difference between transudates versus exudates. In pneumonia, we get exudates and Whenever you get a question stem that gives you pleural fluid and serum fluid analysis, think about using LIGHTS criteria to help you figure out what the etiology is, okay? So thank you guys. As always, if you're still listening, I truly, truly appreciate it. Um, if you like these episodes, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, go onto our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post those under this episode. I'll talk to you very soon, but in the meantime, if you're studying and you ever get that SOS feeling, just remember that you can always tune in to Spoonful of Sugar to help the medicine go down.